Okay, hello everyone. I am Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk and welcome to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series. Um, first off, I need to thank ISBS, the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports, for their support in both organising and promoting this. And of course, I must say, all views are those of individual speakers and not necessarily ISBS themselves. My second huge thank you has to go to Vicon for their financial support in allowing this to go ahead and essentially allowing us to reach as many people as possible. And that is really our main goal, to reach as many people as possible. So with that in mind, we've tried to pitch it so that it's suitable for the majority of undergrad sports science students. So there may be the odd recap thrown in. And if there's anything you want to explore in more detail, then just ask a question or um, things can be explored in more detail as part of existing programmes. Okay, so that leaves just the biggest thank you of the day, which is for Alistair for agreeing to go first on this. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Alistair Dempsey from Murdoch University in Australia. He is a senior lecturer in biomechanics and sports science. His research focuses on understanding the neuromuscular biomechanics behind sports injury and musculoskeletal diseases. And he's kindly offered to do the first lecture on the biomechanics of preventing sports injuries. So thank you, Alistair. Okay. Uh, thanks, Stuart. Uh, get onto the right screen. Okay. So as I said, nice little uh, slide there, it says basically what we're doing again. So we'll move on and really talk about why do we care about injuries? Um, if I was to ask everyone sort of live, you know, how many people have been injured? How many people thought it sort of sucked? It's probably most of the people in the room, particularly um, for me when I'm talking to a very uh, sports science uh, group of students. Um, but also sports injuries are a big issue. So in Australia, so this is just Australian data, in 2016, 2017, there were almost 60,000 hospitalizations due to sport participation. This is not going out and rolling your ankle, treating yourself with rice. This is going to the hospital, um, ending up in the ED and having further treatment from there. So it's not a, a cheap sort of injury to manage, you know, hospitalizations and, you know, with today's environment, we don't really want to be ending up in hospital. So with, um, when we look at that, most of these come from the football codes, netball and basketball, so our team sports. And the football codes, Australian football, which is our sort of native code here, uh, the two rugby, so rugby league and rugby union and uh, association football or soccer. Um, netball, for those who aren't from a Commonwealth country, it's definitely going and worth having a look at a netball game because if you were to design a game where people were to get injured, it would be netball. What's really good for us from um, an injury prevention point of view is that a large proportion of these injuries are due to non-contact mechanisms, which means that we can actually intervene at the level of the athlete or without having to change too much and actually come up with some sort of positive um, outcome, positive mechanism. We don't have to change the game. We don't have to do anything like that. We can intervene and change the athlete and change it, how they interact with their environment. So when it comes to injury, 
it's really all about the load and, and the load that we experience. And, you know, when we get injury, we have the load which is too big. We have a load which is in the wrong direction. We have inadequate support or we have inadequate loading frequency. We're either loading too much, so we get our overuse injuries, or we're we loading too low and quickly transition to a high-frequency load. And that's a lot of where our workload management comes in. So really, the interaction of all these four factors are what leads us to getting injury. In the end, a tissue is going to get damaged when the load that you apply is too big for the tissue's ability to cope. So the, you know, you get your elastic band, you stretch it, you stretch it, you stretch it, it's all good, and then it breaks. The same with our, um, any of our uh, tissue body structures as we go through. So if we look at injury prevention, there's, there's lots of models out there around injury prevention uh, and Melton. The one that I really like is the one proposed by Carolyn Finch in 2006, uh, which takes injury prevention right through from our initial phases through to actually getting people to do the injury prevention. So if we look at that, the first step is obviously to uh, look at what injuries are actually out there. So who's getting injured? How many people are getting injured? And that becomes a, a sort of a big thing. If there's one person who gets injured and no one else in the sport ever has through that mechanism, trying to prevent it is probably fraught. We're doing a lot for not much bang. If we have a injury which doesn't have huge um, detrimental outcomes, for instance, say a hamstring or most hamstrings, but that happens a lot, we want to intervene there. Or something like an ACL, which is what we're going to talk about through most of this lecture, so the anterior cruciate ligament, happens relatively regularly, but when it does happen, it usually leads to about 12 months out of sport, which, you know, for the Joe Blow athlete or even a professional athlete is, is not something we want. So once we know what injuries are actually occurring, we want to intervene. And to intervene, we first need to establish how the injuries are actually occurring. So look at where the injuries are occurring and also look at the mechanism of injury. So once then we get a good handle of that, we can go through and you know, work out what our intervention looks like, do our programming if we're from an exercise science background. Then we should be testing it out in an ideal conditions. Everything's perfect. We, we're nice, controlled, experimental environment. And once we know there and it works, we can go out and we can say, how do I get this from my lab to everyone in the country doing it? And then finally, we need to go back and evaluate. So where does biomechanics come in? So it really sits through steps two, three, and four. We're not epidemiologists. We're not going to go out and do the surveillance. Most of us are not going to be doing the implementation phase, but we're really about understanding how we're getting injured, developing prevention and measures from that, and then going through and doing the evaluation. So if we work through all of these, and, and this is the work that came out of my PhD, looking at um, how each of these steps work. So the first step is really to look at how we're getting injured. So look away now if you don't like uh, gory videos. But this is an example of a contact ACL injury. So if you watch the guy um, coming across here, just turn a pointer on. If you watch uh, this knee here, he gets hit, he gets into that knee abduction, uh, rotation, and 
uh, ACL is gone. And, and from a intervention point of view, there's not much we can do about that. He's been crushed into with his knees, completely legal environment within that sport. So there's not much we can do without really changing the way that the sport is played. The next sort of injury is an indirect contact. So we can see that he's had his loading environment changed by this player here. And then we've had this injury occur here on his left knee. And again, there's only so much we can do to manage and, and to intervene in these sports. And finally, we now move to our classic ACL. So if you watch this play here from Essendon, if you watch this left knee, sorry, Essendon, I forgot I'm not speaking to just Australians, Essendon's the team in black and red. We can see that as the player comes in, he throws his leg out and his knee collapses in. Now, one thing to note when he actually gets injured is that you can see that he's placed his foot a long way from the midline of his body and he's leaning his torso back over this support leg. And we'll see that same position if we look at other ACL injuries. So this is where England lost their 2006 FIFA World Cup bid when Michael Owen uh, snapped his ACL. I do apologise for anyone in Europe who, or anyone in England who's watching it. But again, as we see, he goes to suddenly change direction, throws his leg out a long way, and we can see it collapsing down and in. So again, at foot contact, his foot's a long way away from the midline of his body. And here's a more recent one from AFL, the women's AFL. If you watch his left knee here, we can see that as he goes to change direction, the knee, again, a long way away from the body. Torso is coming back over there. And we see it collapse back in towards the middle of the body. So before we go into the next step, just a quick recap, depending on where you are in your particular course as to what a moment or the moment of force or torque we use these terms interchangeably I think much of the uh, exercise science or sports area talks about it being the moment which is really the turning effect of a force not a moment I do apologize with my typo there of my words um, and the important thing to remember is how do we calculate our moment or the two components of our moment is the force and our moment arm and the moment arm being that perpendicular distance from our axis of rotation to our line of action of the force. So very quickly, we've got this here. So we know that these two uh, characters here will balance out that seesaw because they each produce the same bending moment because we've got the same value here. This one is double the force and half the, um, half the moment arm of the other athlete, so or the other angel there. We're going to have a balance out. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about moments here, is that, that bending force that's occurring. So if we look at our ACL, we've just seen people go through and get injured. And when they get injured, we saw that we had the knee tends to clap in, collapse in, which is what we call a valgus load or an abduction load of the knee. And this is some uh, cadaveric work where we can go through and they went through and they actually loaded the ACLs. This worked by Markov in 1995. And they loaded the knee with an anterior drawer load. So this is this black line coming through here where we pulled on the quadriceps tendon, which slightly uh, pulls the tibia forward, which causes uh, an anterior drawer load on the ACL. What are these other lines here is the combination and the addition of an, uh, an additional load. 
So we can see here that below about 10 degrees of knee flexion, we get a huge increase in the load on the ACL when we apply internal rotation load. Again, with our uh, varus load, so this is when our knee is, our ankle is pulled in. So we're putting a varus moment or an adduction moment on. We can see that we see an increase in our anterior or ACL load, again, below about 10 degrees of knee flexion. If we look at our valgus load, from about 10 degrees of knee flexion through to, you know, right through, we see an increase in our anterior draw. So if we apply this valgus load, we really see an increase in the load on the ACL. And really the big loads are these valgus and internal rotation. These are the ones that have been shown to be dangerous when we look at this cadaveric work and the lines to where we see the knee collapse. So when we looked at all of those, we saw the knee collapse inwards and down. What we also know is that the ACL can be supported by the muscles that cross the knee. So all of the muscles that cross the knee, we talk about our quadriceps as being extensors, but if you think about our quadriceps, if we break them down to our vastus lateralis, it actually inserts on the lateral aspect of the patella. So it's going to have a lateral um, force. Uh, it will produce an uh, abduction moment on the knee. Similar with our vastus medialis, inserts onto the medial aspect of the patella. So it's going to produce a varus moment on the knee. So if I contract all of my medial muscles, I'm actually going to counter out an external valgus load, so something which is forcing me into a valgus position. So our muscles, yes, our quadriceps are extensors, our hamstrings and flexors, but they also have the ability, because of where their um, tendons insert relative to the axis of rotation, which is going to create that moment, they can produce varus and valgus and internal and external rotation moments, and it, which allows them to support and we can look at that through our total activation to how much muscles are occurring, their co-contraction, and also our muscle strength can interplay with those. So we've gone through, we've seen how people get injured, we've looked at the loading, and now we can think about, well, why do we think that that might be a bad position? So we saw that when people got injured, they tended to look like this, with a wide foot placement a long way away from the midline. So we remember back to our moment, it was our force. And in this case, we can assume our force is our uh, mass multiplied by gravity coming down through here. So in both of these athletes, it's the same mass, it's the same person. But we can see that we have a different moment arm. When our foot's in close, we have a small moment arm. So the, the force is coming down not too far away from the medial aspect of the knee. And in this one, we have a much larger moment arm. So what, we, what that results in is a much bigger abduction or a vargas moment in this wide foot placement. And we can go through and test this. And this is what we did. We've gone through and we got people to do a whole pile of wacky side steps. So they came in, run forward, do a side step. That's just normal side step here. And we then got them to throw their torso in the opposite direction of travel to in the same direction of travel to rotate their torso around so their right shoulder was back if they were heading to the left. We got them to flex their knee, we got them to have their knee straight, we got them to turn their foot in, turn their foot out, put their foot close wide, uh, close, and also push their foot as far away as they can and still do the sidestep. And what we see is that when your torso is leaning over and when your foot's wide, you see an increase in the adduction moment or the valgus moment. So we know that the valgus moment increases the load in the ACL, 
We know that people who got injured had their foot out a long way. And now when we measure um, that in a, in a lab, we can see that those who have a wide foot placement have a bigger valgus load. So it's all sort of starting to align that we've got this wide foot placement, uh, causes a high load of the knee, and it's causing a knee load which loads the ACL. We also see that uh, placing the foot wide also increases the internal rotation moment at the knee. Okay, again, internal rotation moments, particularly when the knee is straight, lead to a higher valgus load. So again, this foot wide is a really bad position because it's supposed to increase your uh, valgus force and it also increases your internal rotation moment at the knee. So now we've got a good handle that there seems to be a technique relationship to how we get injured. So we want to develop some preventative measures. Okay, we want to stop these guys getting injured. So we've got two options from a biomechanical perspective. We can uh, reduce our loading or we can increase our support. So we want, to, we want to do one of these. So where does sort of the biomechanics come in? What, what do we, we want to do? Well, let's go back to this. We worked out that we've got the same athlete, which means that they have the same uh, mass, but we've got different moment arms, which result in uh, different torques. So if I can move an athlete from having a technique that looks like this to a technique that looks like this, maybe I can reduce my force. So I've got a, a prevention measure. Let's change the technique. Let's take people away from the high risk, high load technique to a reduced uh, loading environment. So we've come up with a theory. We've, we've gone through, we've developed prevention measure. We think this is going to work. So now we need to sum and test it in an ideal site and do your conditions in a scientific evaluation. Now, the great thing with biomechanics in, in testing this is that we can use a much smaller cohort to go and test out to see if our preventative measures work. If I'm trying to do actual epidemiology studies where I go through and I um, apply this to a large cohort and I track to see if they get injured over time, I need 200, 300, 500 people. To test this in the lab, I can do it with 20. Okay, so it's a great way to sort of test. I've got my risk factors, I've established what my risk factors are in here. And often these risk factors are things that we can measure in biomechanics. It's a force, it's a muscle activation. So we can measure these risk factors. We've identified them, we can measure them, so we can apply our intervention and see, does it change the risk factors? So the risk factors that we had were a large valgus and a large internal rotation moment. So we've gone through and we were trying to get people to avoid these high loading techniques. So these are the techniques these three from so the first paper that we were talking about and this one from the literature, which is to increase knee flexion. And we try to get athletes to do all of these, to, to bring their trunk more upright as it is a sidestep, to not rotate their body, to bend their knee a little bit more at foot contact and also to bring their foot in closer. And we can see that we weren't really great at successful at, you know, getting their knee flexed, but we could bring the foot closer to the midline. So the foot, it's not much, it's only two centimetres as, as a whole population. So the foot's come a little bit closer. 
And we've also got the torso to be more upright, particularly during a planned sidestep. So during this task, they came through and were either told you're doing a sidestep or just before they reached the force plate, they were told do a sidestep, do a run, uh, do a crossover cut to the change to go the other direction, which is just to try and mimic that, that unplanned scenario that you see in the field. So particularly when we had a planned sidestep, we see a reduction Oh, wait, with reduction in our torso lateral flexion. So great, we can change technique. I would hope we can. We, you know, particularly any of us who have been involved in coaching, that's what we're trying to do is change technique. So great, we can do that. It was done with video feedback. So guys got to watch them, watch themselves perform, uh, cues on the ground, so all of the stuff that we get from our motor learning. And what we found was that we can reduce the valgus moment by about 30% just by bringing the foot in about two centimeters on average and also keeping the torso upright. So from a injury prevention perspective, this technique appears to be successful. And when you go through and, and look at uh, injury prevention programs, which are now rolled out more broadly, you see uh, this technique modification being included alongside a lot of the technique modification you see in landing about getting the knee uh, keeping the knee out in that position out over the small little toe. So that's really the, the main role that biomechanics has in this space. But just to sort of finish up the injury prevention, really the, the next step is about, and, and ISBS is very much about trying to get things into, into coaches and getting coaches to actually apply stuff, which is really where this next step is, which is to think about where we want to apply this intervention. and to make sure that it's going to work. Your, your environment where you're going to want to put this uh, intervention in, it's gonna make a huge difference to, um, to the population or to what you actually do. And then we can go through and evaluate it. So some of the things you need to think about when you, when you put an intervention together is sort of the nature of a sport. If you have a contact sport, an obvious solution to a number of the injuries is to take away the contact. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate at the moment around uh, tackling in rugby union. Um, I know in the UK there's been some letters from some uh, very influential people saying that there should be no contact in uh, schoolboys rugby union. There's, I've seen some similar sort of arguments made here in Australia. But that's, that's what the sport is. So how do we modify it? You know, a lot of the work that was done recently and was demonstrated the last World Cup to reduce the tackle height and to have mandated frameworks around yellow cards was led out um, by the Rugby Science Network with guys at Bath and over in South Africa as well to basically enforce the rules but understand the biomechanics and understanding how people are actually getting injured. So it's a good example there. You know, the level of the target cohort, this might be a great intervention for a professional team, probably not so good for your um, under 10 soccer team that you're coaching on the weekend because you don't have, uh, you know, all this equipment floating around and you're never going to have it. You know, how invasive is the intervention? Um, we, we can talk about you know, changing people's cue angles of their hips to reduce the, the alignment, to get better alignment of the knees, but I don't know many people are going to go and have that surgery um, just to reduce their risk of ACL injury. So the surgery is probably more invasive than an ACL injury. You also need to think about you know, what players want um, if anyone's ever heard of the FIFA 11 plus uh, soccer program, 
it failed miserably the first time because it was 11 static exercises that didn't progress. If you think about anyone who plays sport, the first thing you want to do when you get to the field is to get a ball and to score. So we need to make sure that your players are moving around, that they've got the ball, that they interact and move around and also progress. And you also, again, this comes down to the, you know, the level of the target, what sort of uh, things club have access to. Um, just before we go, let's just have one sort of more example of how we can use this. And this is an intervention that's slightly different where it actually changed the rules of the game, but without really changing the nature of the sport. So rules and nature are not always exactly the same. So if anyone's ever seen the AFL, um, the game traditionally starts with the ball being bounced in the middle. Uh, and the two guys, two biggest guys in the team, pretty much run up and try and tap the ball to their own advantage. Um, what the AFL was finding is that from 98 to 2004, there's an explosion in PCL injuries occurring at this, this centre bounce when the game was being restarted. And what they were looking at is that the rules at the time said that the guys could run anywhere from inside a 50-metre um, box. So they had to start one side or the other. So two guys weighing, you know, 100-odd kilos could sprint at each other at 25 kilos, jump up with their knees led board. Probably not the best um, idea. When you consider that the ideology of uh, a PCL injury is a tibial impact force causing rapid posterior shift and PCL rupture. So you don't really want two guys banging their tibias into each other at full speed. Now, we all know that when two guys make contact, for, uh, impact momentum, oh, sorry, impulse momentum relationship says that, you know, the quicker we have to change our momentum, the bigger the impulse is going to be. And our momentum change is related to both how big the guys are and how fast they're traveling. So we're not going to make the guys any lighter. In fact, they've gotten heavier since then. But we can actually reduce their speed. And the way that the speed was reduced was to actually introduce a five meter circle. So, oh, sorry, 10 meter circle. So the guys, instead of running from this line back here, which is 25 meters away, only had uh, five meters to accelerate. That re results in a reduction in velocity and therefore a reduction in that peak force when they're at contact. Does it work? This was great because the, the AFL keep great injury um, data. So if you ever want some injury data to look at how things change in interventions, come here and we can see that when the rule was introduced, before the 2006 season, the number of centre bounce PCL injuries completely disappeared and it hasn't gone back up again. And that's still the rule that's being used. So it was a rule change that's introduced, but it doesn't really change the nature. It's still two big guys jumping up and competing for the ball. They just do it from 10 metres away as opposed to 25 metres away and we don't change. And now the final thing to remember before we sort of stop talking about injuries is that it doesn't really matter how good we are at injury prevention, there is no way that we can stop all injuries. There is always something that's going to happen uh, that is beyond any sort of prevention that we can introduce other than sitting in our own rooms and doing nothing. Thanks very much, guys. Okay, thank you. So. All that's left for me to say is a huge thank you to Alistair for kicking us off on week one of the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series. Um, yeah, I'm sure you'll all agree that was excellent and I really enjoyed it. Uh, if anyone has any more questions, then please 
kind of use the hashtag on Twitter. So hashtag sportsbiomls, and we will be keeping an eye out for that. Um, but I can now announce kind of the schedule for the next two weeks. So we've got both myself and Dr. Paul Felton um, focusing on cricket biomechanics next week, which will be both bowling, so fast bowling and spin bowling, followed later on in the day by batting biomechanics. And then there's a couple of really interesting talks the week after, which on Tuesday the 7th is Johans with long jump with the sports prosthesis. And then on the Friday, we have Wouter with running footwear and the two-hour marathon. So keep an eye out for those. All the talks will be on YouTube and we'll be sharing links on social media in the coming days. Thank you.